You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk, but bestow upon me your servant the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins and not to judge my brother, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants for our Sunday Gospel Reflection here at the midpoint of the fast. Latari Sunday coming up, Father Hezekiah. I know. Yeah. Latari means rejoice, right? Rejoice, rejoice. Yeah. From the liturgy. And um, so it's very beautiful. It It is a time of rejoicing and the church very much helps us do that in the biblical text, which we're going to be looking at, which is all about arrival. Yeah. Arrival. Arrival about salvation. Yeah. Arrival is the right word. Yes. Arrival. Because she's saying, look across the sea of the fast, see off in the distance, the shining light of the resurrection is calling us. Yeah. We're so close. It's like that light at the end of the tunnel is there. There you go. So the church gives us the, in the, in the uh, Latin tradition, this Sunday of rejoicing in which you, you have a little the, a little bit reprieve from the fast, a little bit of the, the vestments, you know, and so forth. Everything is saying it's coming. Stay strong. You know what it's like, Annie? It's like the yeah. transfiguration. Yeah? yeah. Strengthening us now to get us through what's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to the goal, to the, which is, of course, <laughs> the, the resurrection of Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. So get out your notebooks, get out your Bibles. And here are the readings yeah. for the fourth Sunday of Lent. The first reading is from Joshua chapter five, and we're doing the first half of verse nine and then verses 10 through 12. Explain that one to me. I have Why no can't idea. we just do the second half of verse nine too? I, I don't know. know. Anyway, is it that confusing? To be we'll honest. You'll have to with, tell us. That'll be, be, that can be, be one honest, of the first we, questions we cover. I actually didn't notice that we were only doing half of nine. So there, <laughs> there probably is a good reason. <laughs> And the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So they skipped the little, it's called Gilgal to this day because it uh, maybe distracts a little bit, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not the one that comes up with the lectionary. I don't question their wisdom most of the time. It says, it says, it says, it, it, okay, so I, I, the translation I read said rolled away. This translation says I have removed because removed, the, the yeah. word Gilgal means to roll away or remove. Okay. Oh, so, really? Yeah, oh. Yeah. Anyways, but oh, this is no, I totally already. interrupted you. Go ahead and give the biblical passages. All right. So that was Joshua five and then essentially verses nine through 12. The responsorial Psalm is Psalm 34. Our gospel is from Luke chapter 15, and we're doing verses 1 through 3, and then verses 11 through 32. And our epistle is from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. So you ready to dive into Joshua? I know you're excited to get to talk about Joshua. Let's do Joshua. All right, Joshua chapter five, and we're going to start with verse nine. It says, the Lord said to Joshua, today I have removed the reproach of Egypt from you. While the Israelites were encamped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 14th of the month. On the day after the Passover, They ate of the produce of the land in the form of unleavened cakes and parched grain. On that same day after the Passover, on which they ate of the produce of the land, the manna ceased. No longer was there manna for the Israelites, 
who that year ate of the yield of the land of Canaan. Mm -hmm. So as we dive into this passage, Father Hezekiah, the the first question I have, I I mean, we may as well just go through this in order, right? So um, why is the Lord removing the reproach of Egypt on this day? And actually, what what is the reproach of Egypt? Sure. Okay. The reason you're asking that question, Annie, is because as we always do, helicopter in. It's the context of what's going on here. So if you get, if you, I hope you have your Bible out here. Okay. And you've got your got little right here. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Nice. See, I even look, I, I glued a little map in when just like 20 oh, years nice. ago, I glued a little map into my Bible. There. Awesome. Anyway. Is that Jericho there? Yeah. It's Gil. It shows, it shows uh, Gilgal and Jericho. And it shows the path of, you know, the, the Israelites took into the Holy Land. Anyways, neither here nor there. But context, context, context. Here in chapter 5 of Joshua. This is one of my favorite passages, by the way, of Joshua. And really, I would say it ranks pretty high in my favorite passages of the Old Testament. Because it is so charged with Christian prefigurement. It's so, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really a text of preparation. And so, anyways, but here in chapter 5, you'll notice in verse two and following at that time the lord said to joshua make flint knives and circumcise the people of israel again the second time so joshua made flint knives and circumcised the people of israel at gil at 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 the the location and this is the reason why joshua circumcised them all the males of the people who came out of egypt all the men of war had died on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of egypt Though all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, yet all the people that were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So for like 40 your, years? Your head's got to be blowing off right now, right? Because you yeah. got to go back and you got to say Mount Sinai, the golden calf. The 40, they get they get to the whole, yeah, they cross the, the desert. They get there in Josh in, uh, in, in um, Numbers 13. They get to the land. Remember, they spy out the land for 40 days. Mm-hmm. And it's Joshua and Caleb that come back and they're like, let's go. And the rest of people are like, no way. We're going to get killed if we go in there. The people are way too strong for us and we're going to die most horribly. And so God, the Lord says, well, okay, you didn't want to go in. Well, you can go wander for 40 years in the <laughs> sure. desert. Right. You remember that. So anyways. So you would think they would have been more serious about their relationship with God, but no, of course not. Total disaster. They didn't even circumcise the people. Right. And so now they get there and Joshua and God says they got to be circumcised. or they are going to enter back into the house, right? The circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. So they enter into my house in a relationship with me. They got to be circumcised. Okay. So I probably was not a very popular day. I would uh, in, 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 no, 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 no. And probably Joshua was not a popular leader. Probably, you know, his ratings, right? His presidential ratings went way down that day. Anyways, so, uh, so yeah, they certainly. So, what is the reproach of removed today? The reproach of Egypt. Well, remember that there's a great line that Scott Hahn uses. Thinking a father keeps his promise. He says it was, it, it's easier to get Israel out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of Israel, right? Because they're right. carrying this attachment to sin they're carrying attachment to their old way of life their life apart from god in their hearts so when they're circumcised they're in a sense cutting off the old man yeah Yeah. circumcision is a prefigurement of baptism and is a sign of the covenant yeah saint Mm -hmm. paul says that baptism is a new circumcision right and so um this is what i'm saying this this text is 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 charged with say shadows types of the gift that we receive in the new in Christ in the New Testament. And um, but I'm going on. We'll have more to say about that in, in just a minute. Well, okay, then that's the reproach of Egypt being removed because they've all been circumcised now. And so they have this Passover meal and then the manna goes away. Right. What's that about? So this is a really good point. Another reason I'm super excited about this text today is because the the manna sea scene on the same day that they receive or the day before, right. And then they receive the produce of the land. Yeah. Super important because it shows that the manna was a prefigurement, a preparation for the fruit of the promised land. Now we have to go back and remind ourselves of the kind of a biblical mindset of these people. It was believed among the Jews that the Holy land, Jerusalem in particular, but all of the Holy land, 
was the original location of the Garden of Eden. And if you keep that in your mind, that they saw themselves as entering back into paradise, then you can see, you know, understand something very important. And that is that manna is a preparation for a type of the fruit of the Garden of Eden, primarily a type of a preparation for a participation in the tree of life, which Adam and Eve lost in paradise, that tree from which they would have eaten and lived forever. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is, this is again, fundamentally important for Christians because as a preparation for, as a type of the fruit of the promised land, as a type of the fruit of paradise, as a type of the fruit of the tree of life, it is also a prefigurement and a type and a shadow of the Eucharist, the yes. Eucharist being in the church, paradise restored, the Eucharist being a restoration of God's original plan to feed us and through eating that we would receive eternal life. Does that make sense? There's a, there's a kind of a, yeah. a going around this road connection here, right? You have yeah. the garden of Eden, you have manna, right? And, and of course, Egypt then becomes not only Egypt, but it becomes life apart from God. Yeah. And slavery to sin. The manna then strengthens us for our journey to paradise where we receive again the tree of life. Well, the Eucharist functions in this way, doesn't it? Not only is it the manifestation of the tree of life, the gift of the restoration of paradise, but it is also itself a shadow. That is, we receive now under a veil the fullness of what we will receive when we see the Lord face to face. Yes. So we don't, we oftentimes as Catholics think like that. The Eucharist is a shadow, is a prefigurement. It's a type of communion with God that we will receive. Now, I'm going to lay all of this out for you very quickly by going over to Cardinal Jean Danielou. It's very important is this text is given to us in the church at this time, primarily because who's standing in the church? The catechumens. Yeah. Lent was originally a period for the catechumenate, and these biblical texts were part of the catechesis that was given, saying, look what God did for you in the past, and did for all of us in the past. He's going to do the same thing for you, and that is you are going to be receiving. You're going to be entering through the waters of baptism, like the waters of the Jordan River. You will be entering into the promised land that is paradise restored, that is the church. And there you will receive this gift of the, of the, of the fruit of the promised land, namely the Eucharist. Yes? Now look, yeah. at, what, look at what Daniel Lewis says about this kind of, uh, this kind of interpretation, this kind of understanding. This Cardinal Jean Daniel Lewis, The Bible and the Liturgy. You can still order this book today, a different cover though. Okay? <laughs> there. Um, he says... Before we study these patristic interpretations, we must first define the principles which inspire them. For this symbolism is not subject to the whims of each interpreter. It constitutes a common tradition going back to the apostolic age. And what is striking about this tradition is its biblical character. Whether we read the instructions concerning the sacraments or look at the paintings in the catacombs or struck at once by figures taken from the holy scriptures, Adam in paradise, Noah in the ark, Moses crossing the Red Sea, These are images used for the sacraments. It is then the meaning and origin of this biblical symbolism that we must first make clear. Now, he goes on. This, that that the realities of the Old Testament, here we're talking about Joshua and the manna and and the fruit of the promise, that the realities of the Old Testament are figures of those of the new, is one of the principles of biblical theology. This science of similitudes between the two testaments is called typology. And here we would do well to remind ourselves of its foundation, for this is to be found in the Old Testament itself. At at the time of the captivity, that's the Babylonian exile, the prophets announced to the people that, to the people of Israel, that in the future, God would perform for their benefit deeds analogous to and even greater than those he had performed in the past. So there would be a new deluge, a new flood, in which sinful, the sinful world would be annihilated, and, and a few men, a remnant, would be preserved inaugurated a new humanity there would be a new exodus in which by his power god would set mankind free from the bondage to idols there would be a new paradise into which god would introduce the people he had redeemed okay and so forth so he says this is this is in scripture so this was the expectation of the people that what god had done in the past he would do again and fulfill yeah okay and then he goes on to say this the sacraments carry on in our midst 
the great works of God in the Old Testament and in the New. For example, the flood, the passion, and baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. And these three phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. Now, I'm going to read you from his section on the Eucharist, in which I'm also going to quote uh, St. Augustine. Actually, let me read you from St. Augustine. I'll quote Daniel again, and then we'll move on. And this is going to blow your mind, Danny. Oh, I can't wait. So this is what he says. This is what he says about the manna and about all of these types in the Old Testament, types of the, uh -huh. of the sacraments of the new. St. Augustine says, the manna signifies the Eucharistic bread. The altar, uh, and the altar of God also signifies the Eucharistic bread. But these already were sacraments. The appearances are different, but the reality is the same. Now go back to what Daniel was saying about the same divine activity, right? Wow. The appearances are different, but the reality is the same. The bodily nourishment is different since they ate manna and we something else. But the spiritual nourishment was the same for both of us. Huh. And this is confirmed by St. Paul Yeah. in 1 Corinthians. If you turn your Bibles, keep Joshua open. Turn your Bibles with me. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I think. Chapter No, chapter 10, verse 1. Are you with me? I'm here. Faster. I want, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same supernatural food, and all drank the same supernatural drink, for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's right. This was the reading from last weekend, I think. Mm, yeah. My brothers and sisters, your, your head's blowing off right now. It should be. If it's yeah. not, you got something wrong with you. Why <laughs> is he saying this? Because there is no salvific work that is not of God. Yeah. So anytime that the Lord acts to save his people, it's the same divine activity, right? God is love. Love is the sharing of our life with the other. So as, as the Lord saved Israel in the desert by giving them manna and water, so it is the same Lord saving us in the Eucharistic sacrifice. And these things which he did before are now fulfilled. They point to a more full participation, this reality in the New Testament, which itself points forward to the full participation in heaven itself. Okay. Wow. So, so we're awaiting the ceasing of the manna right now, essentially. Yes, yeah. ex exactly. And the manna, of course, participated in the reality that they were to receive in, in, the, in the promised land mm -hmm. as the Eucharist now feeding us for the journey participates in the reality of what we will receive wow. there. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. so now, wow. now, now I want you to check the, the scene out. Israel leaves behind them their 40 years of wandering, leaves behind them Egypt and so forth. They cross through the Jordan River, having been, in a sense, baptized, yes, through the Jordan, mm -hmm. that is washed and prepared. They are circumcised. So this, all this baptismal imagery, circumcised and baptized, and now enter into the promised land that is paradise restored. And now they eat of the tree of life. That is they taste of the a type of the Eucharist. Yeah. All in preparation for you and me so that we can understand what we're about to receive. Having having washed through the baptismal font on, on Easter night, as the catechumen does, will enter into paradise restored and be given the gift of the fruit of the tree of life. Do you know that it was the custom of the early church that when a, a newly baptized person entered the church on Easter night, they would receive the Eucharist in this manner. <clears throat> they would receive first from the chalice. Kind of, okay, first from okay. the chalice. Then they would be given warm, sweet milk. And then they would eat of the Eucharistic bread to remind, really? yes, to remind them that they were entering the land flowing with milk and honey. Wow. The sweetness of the spiritual life. Isn't that beautiful? That's so cool. So now this text is given to us now in preparation for the catechumen, all of us now preparing our way to a full participation on Easter night. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Can you speak to the role of Joshua in all of this, Father? Uh, well, sure. Okay, I'll just I'll just say this very shortly because I know we're going to run out of time. And that is, the name Jesus 
and the name Joshua, the same name. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua, Yeshua, yeah, which means Yahweh saves, okay? Joshua is a prefigurement of Christ, obviously, as he leads us, all of his people, into the promised land that is into the church, right? No longer through the waters of the Jordan River now, but now through the waters of the baptismal font, or we should say the waters of the River Jordan flowing in our baptismal fonts. Yeah. yeah. So Joshua is uh, the, the role of Joshua, the, the person of Joshua stands very much as a prefigurement of Christ as he leads the people, one who fully entrusts himself to God. Yeah. Because he did not doubt. He said, we certainly can't enter. Right. He remains 40 years wandering in the desert. Don't you think about the image of Joshua and the patience he has with his people to come in and finally I can pretty much be sure that he was the one telling them to circumcise and they were refusing to do so just as much as to be honest with you. Sadly, I tell so many people, why aren't you baptizing your baby? Oh, you know, father, we got to wait for, you know, great grandma to come from the old country and we can't do it till she comes under three years old. And they're being baptized. You know, don't do this, you know? So they didn't listen then and they don't listen now, <laughs> but, but he, he stands as a symbol for us of Christ. And, and then this whole story, then of the church. Can I, can I just share this one quote from, from Daniel Liu that I meant to, to say there? Please. Listen, Judaism had already given to the manna an eschatological significance. That is uh, a significance, which was, uh, which was, uh, it was a preparation for paradise restored, the fullness of right. paradise restored, right? Uh, a heavenly significance. Okay. Yeah. As God had nourished his people with a miraculous food in the time of the Exodus of old, so would he do again in the time of the new eschatological Exodus. This eschatological significance of the manna appears in the New Testament. Here he quotes Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. To him who conquers, I will give a hidden manna. The manna is put on the same plane with the tree of life. I'm sorry, this was, this was Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 7, in which the same phrase is used back and forth between the manna and the tree of life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of course, Jesus in John six also talks about, he's the one that brings up the issue of the manna. Right. right? right. And so he, he himself teaches us the Eucharist in the context of the manna. And so it becomes a, a figure of participation, the divine blessing in the world to come. Okay. I think we've said enough about that. Beautiful. Very beautiful as we prepare now for, for Easter coming. Well, and it brings so much more significance or beauty to the, the response that we have for the responsorial Psalm, taste and mm. see the goodness of the Lord. You know, Annie, what we're going to do here, this is beautiful. Psalm 34. I oftentimes say, guys, these Psalms, I mean, Psalm means song, right? They're supposed to be sung because when we sing, we Pray twice, Pray twice, yeah. Like Augustine Mu says, song yeah. music has this ability to dive to the deepest part of the soul, as Socrates says, and and adhere there. I right? fasten on there. We have a great talk at the institute by Dr. Cutterback on music and the soul. I highly recommend it. But here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you the difference here. I could come into church on Sunday. Well, I can't because our Byzantine liturgy is chanted. But you could <laughs> go to an, at your average liturgy, and 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 the and the person gets up there and says. Taste and see how good the Lord is. Taste and see how good the, the Lord, Lord is. And then we move on. But this is supposed to be sung. And guess what? This is a, one of the favorite psalms in our Byzantine tradition, chanted during Lent at the time of receiving the Eucharist during the weekdays of Lent at the liturgy, which we call the pre-sanctified liturgy. Okay. And, and we sing this. Taste, our, our translation is a little bit different. That's taste and see how good the Lord is. This is tasty of the goodness of the Lord, but regardless. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Something unusual first time here at Sunday Gospel Reflections. And that is we're going to cut in a little video, music video for you. So Ooh. you can hear these beautiful words chanted as they're chanted. This, these words are chanted as the people are, are, are preparing themselves to come up to receive the Eucharist. And in the church, sometimes five or 10 minutes, we sing this Psalm taste and see how good the Lord is. Okay. So we're going to cut this in for you now. Taste and see how good 
amazing that was beautiful so this is something that you do all through lent all through lent we sing this all in in preparation to receive communion during the weekdays of lent and uh yeah it's one of my favorites wow very 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 cool well let's look at the gospel now for the sake of time we're going to be going to luke chapter 15 here we're going to start off with the first three verses and then if you're following along in your bible After verse three, we'll skip to verse 11 and head through verse 32. Mm -hmm. So here we go. A famous passage, I would say, from the lost chapter of Luke. I like to call this the lost chapter of Luke. Anyway, we'll get to that. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus, but the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them, Jesus addressed this parable. A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here am I dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, His father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field and on his way back as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, your brother has returned and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry. And when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, look, all these years I served you and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him, you slaughter the fattened calf. He said to him, my son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. I mean, obviously a parable that we all know and love one that we one that we hear from from the various early the very earliest days of of childhood really 
I want to first of all just get some context here in terms of of Jesus. So, like, take out the the parable part of this. I mean, what is going on in the life and ministry of Jesus right now at this point, and why is he telling this parable when he does? Well, good. And you remember when we were looking at the feast of the Gospel of the Transfiguration last Sunday? Yes, I think it was two Sundays. Two Sundays, ago. whatever yeah, two the case may be. I'm sorry, I got the Roman lectionary, Byzantine lectionary, too much yeah. in my head right now. <laughs> Anyways, um, but um, but uh, re- you'll remember at the end of the of the uh, we'll just take a look at that flip over to Luke chapter nine, verse 53, verse 53. Andy, go ahead and read that for us. All right. Give me one second. I'm well, I, I just. 52 says he was, he entered a village of the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, so chapter Luke, Luke chapter, I said chapter nine, whatever I said, chapter nine, verse 53. But the people would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So you remember that you could look back by the way at Ezekiel chapter 21, verse one, in which you get the same idea. The setting the face to Jerusalem is a biblical idiom, a way of saying he, he was all in, right? He's heading there, but he heads there. He's, he's all in, in his, in his heart and his mind, right? He's going to Jerusalem for the passion. So we've now, we now enter at this point, the second part really of the whole gospel story, which is now going to take us from Luke chapter nine, all the way to the end of the gospel, right? Until to the resurrection. And so, but in the meantime, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus kind of makes a little, he, he's got his face set there but he's doing one of these things. Okay. He's, he goes, so he goes, he still goes and does some teaching. He goes and, and there's some healings and things like that in the intervening chapters. And that's where these parables start to, to take place. So this is very important because the transfiguration really is that turmoil. He is done. He's really, I mean, if you're not convinced of his divinity, if you're not convinced he's the Messiah at this point, the game's pretty much up. Okay. So he goes around and do some healings. And when he does these healings through, through Galilee uh, on his way, as he's going to go to Jerusalem, now the group, the groups that he encounters are like seriously divided. Mm-hmm. I, they, they've, they've made their decision already. So you're just going to contextualize this a little bit by going back. Look at chap, Luke chapter 10, verse, Luke chapter 10, verse 10. As he tells his, as he tells his, his disciples to go out to these villages and to heal the sick and so forth. He says in verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And now, now here's what, this is what he says. You have to understand these towns of why he says this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that is among the, the, on the coast, right? These are the heathens, right? They're not Jews in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it shall be more tolerable in in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he rejects me rejects him who sent me. All right. So what's he saying? Well, you just have to know that Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are all on that northeastern edge edge of the Sea of Galilee. And that was exactly where Jesus spent three years. He's just going, he's just like, it's like called the Jesus triangle right there. And they, um, he would just go like this all around these villages. Nobody saw more of Jesus in those three towns right there. And yet, and yet what is going on behind? You say, well, gee whiz, boy, that was really tough. Cause I mean, Peter lived in Capernaum. I mean, these guys, that's where the guys were from Bethsaida. Yeah. But there were a lot of guys in those towns that were not only not following Jesus, we come to find out they're actively looking for his downfall. So take a look at chapter 11, verse 53. Chapter 11, verse 53. 
as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak of many things, lying in wait for him to catch at something he might say. You see that? They're lying in wait for him. This has been going on all during his ministry, but now it's reached a kind of a, a, a fever pitch, right? It's, it, now it's, it's, it, they're, they're going to they're gonna try, to, try to kill him. Look at chapter 13, verse, uh, let's see, chapter 13, verse 31. No, this is one of my favorites because we read these passages, but we just kind of like, we don't get what's, what's behind it, right? Look at this. Chapter 13, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. And tomorrow on the third day, I finish my course. Right? He's the third day like that of the resurrection, right? So who are they? You say, well, that was kind of mean, Jesus. Shouldn't Jesus say something? Look, the Pharisees are trying to protect you. They weren't trying to protect him. <laughs> Why did they know what Herod was saying? Because they're in his court. Yeah, they're talking right? to him. So they're playing a game with him and he knows and he says, you go tell you go tell him yourself. You go tell that fox who you're friends with, right? Okay, and then finally, chapter 13. Well, I could have done this before, but look at chapter 13, verse 10. Turn to Matthew, chapter 13. Here we go. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Give it to us, Annie. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Oh, I know I want to go, go here because this goes to your point of like what's going on in the gospel, right? Yeah. And so now Jesus is speaking in parables and now he's going to give them the answer why. And this text out of context doesn't make very much sense. But in the context of what these guys are doing behind their line and wait for him to trap him, right? So they can arrest him and kill him. And so now read what Jesus says of why he talks in parables. And he answered them. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given for to him who has will for this sentence always trips me up. Let's do this again for to him who has will more be given and he who will have and he will have abundance, but from him who has not even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. These are the guys that had seen him multiply the loaves and fishes. They ate of the, of his, from his hand. These are the guys that saw him walk on water. These are the guys that saw him heal the paralytics, drive out the demons. Yes. For three years, they've been seeing it and they've they've seen and they don't understand. They, they've rejected him. Keep going. Oh, am I supposed to? Yeah, yeah, keep going. keep going. Oh, no, I just turned away from Matthew. Oh, that's all right. Verse 13, I'm, where you are, verse 13, I think. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 14, with them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, you shall indeed hear, but never understand. You shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears are heavy with hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should perceive with their ears and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn to me to heal them. But blessed are your eyes. See, see him talking to the apostles now. Yeah. Blessed are your eyes for they have seen and your ears so they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it and to, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Mm. Here then in parable, the, the parables, okay? And there is in Matthew, right? So now we apply that to what's going on in Luke. We can, full, we can really understand now what's taking place. Now Jesus is going to talk to them in a parable. It's going to talk about them. It's going to talk about these Pharisees and these, the, the, these guys that are lying in wait, yeah? But it's, and it's also going to talk about the sinners Jesus is eating with, right? How does this passage begin? Jesus is eating with sinners and people that are outside of the family. They're not Jews or they're, they're publicly, you know, public sinners, whatever the case is, they're not accepted by those who are in religious control and authority, right? So now he's going to tell a parable so his apostles can understand the, the scene that they see around themselves, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's the, the first couple of verses of chapter 15. I mentioned I like to call this the lost chapter of Luke because 
we skip over for the purposes of, of the gospel reading this Sunday, we skip over the parable of the lost sheep, you know, the, the shepherd that goes off and finds the one. And then the parable of the lost coin and the woman mm -hmm. who, who does all the cleaning to find it and then throws a party when she does. And then we get to this epic parable of, of the prodigal son. Um, I'm curious, what, what would you do? Is there a link between this prodigal son parable and, and the first reading with Joshua, or is it just kind of, what do you think? Oh, well, you have a softball, Annie. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course, <laughs> of course there's, a, of course there's a link and we're going to understand just as we understood the Eucharist and baptism and all these things also understand the people right out in the desert wandering for 40 days. God has been there, has nourished them, has taken care of them, right? And yet they haven't trusted him, in him, right? So there's there, all of the story of the Exodus is that for the Jews, this, the story of the Exodus was like the whole story of salvation history, right? And so they're looking, as they're looking forward to this occurring again, right? This taking them, cleansing them, which is why the Pharisees send the guys down to John the Baptist at Jordan River and says, are you the prophet? right? Because he's doing what Moses and Joshua had done, taking them and, and cleansing them of their sin. So, so then the question is, what's going on? Is this just some nice story that I'm supposed to read it's about two brothers that can't get along, right? I mean, that's a classic story, is it not? Yeah. Two brothers, yeah. right? The older one, the younger one. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I won't go any further with that. No, there's, of course, the brothers represent something more than just the brothers, right? It's a parables or it has to have a deeper spiritual meaning. So listen to St. Peter Chrysologus on this. He had two sons, that is two peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles. Prudent knowledge of the law made the Jewish people his older son, and the folly of, the, of paganism made the Gentile world his younger son. Just as surely as wisdom brings distinguished gray hairs, so does foolishness take away the traits of an adult. Morals and not age made the Gentiles the younger son, not ears, but understanding of the law made the Jews the older son. Okay, and this is the classic interpretation the fathers give that Jesus is saying, Hey, I've you you've been in the home the whole time. Well, these other people, right? How do we begin this? The mm -hmm. now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, right? And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there you have it, right? There's your there's your kind of two people, right? Yeah. Jesus has been going now out of the family of God and he's calling in, yes, the prostitutes and the, those that are rejected, the paralytics and the blind, the sinners, the tax collectors who are hated. Their the tax collectors were like, they were Jews who had like given themselves over to, to Rome, right? They, they completely abandoned the family of God and were now stealing from their own people, right? So they were hated. And the Pharisees were like serious about the faith, right? They were like totally dedicated. And so Jesus gives this parable and says, hey, you've been in my home the whole time. I've taken care of giving you everything. There's nothing you haven't received, right? But now that guy out there, I'm going to bring him home again. And so now we start to interpret and understand this passage in this deeper way. I'm going to, I'm going to read again from St. Peter Chrysologus. Okay. The, the father runs out from far away. And this is where I think Annie, we can start to apply this parable in to us. Okay. Sure. The father uh, to us, but to its, in its original context. And then to us. Yeah. The father runs out from far away. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The father runs out. He runs out in his son. When through him, he descends from heaven and comes down on earth. With me, the son says, is he who sent me the father. He fell upon his neck. He fell when through Christ, the whole divinity came down as ours and rested on human nature. When did he kiss him? When mercy and truth have met each other, justice and peace have kissed. He gave the best robe. And this is where, this is where we now can make that full connection back to, to, um, to Joshua and back to paradise. Okay. Listen to this. He gave the best robe that, that which Adam lost the everlasting glory of immortality. Now I'll stop there for a second. Cause this is again, this church, the quotation, the, the interpretation of the church fathers that 
Adam and Eve, we always say, oh, well, they were naked before the fall. Yes and no. The fathers of the church say they were clothed in the grace of God, which is why when we're, we baptize people, we clothe them in white. Yeah. We're about to see this, and the catechumens are going to be baptized, right? So yeah. this is the church again helping the catechumen along to say, understand what's about to take place. The father is running to you. God is running to you. He's going to throw his robe, his own robe. What is his own robe? Is this the gift of his life, right? His divinity over you. Yeah. And then we receive back then that which Adam and Eve lost in paradise, namely access to the tree of life in the home of God, the father. So he gave the best robe that was Adam lost the everlasting glory of immortality. He put a ring upon his finger. That is the ring of honor, the title of liberty, the outstanding pledge of the spirit, the seal of faith, and the dowry of the heavenly marriage. Hear the apostle. I engage you to one spouse that I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ. And the sandals on his feet, this is to say that his feet that his feet might be in shoes when he preached the gospel. For how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel who preach the gospel of peace. Okay. So, so important. It's so, so beautiful. This parable that's given to us in its original context in, the, in Luke about what's taking place and how Jesus is talking to the Jews who have rejected him and then talking to his, his apostles. But then it, then we can then take it to the next level. And that is my brothers and sisters, aren't we even more like the older brother, right? They received the law. We receive Christ. They received manna. We received the Eucharist. We have everything from the Lord. And so often we keep our faith to ourselves and we don't give it to others. And in that act, you, we want to think about this. When, we, when we, we fail to evangelize those around us, we rob them of the gift that is rightfully theirs. Yes? And so we keep that at arm's distance from the house of God. And we keep the house of God and all the good things to ourselves. This parable has everything to do with us. And may God have mercy on us, yeah, and not throw us out of the house and not take away the gift that we've received only to give it to another because they've become more worthy than us. Well, it's kind of interesting, don't you think, Father, that it, that the parable just ends there with what the father has to say to the older son. We don't That's find right. out what the older son chooses to do. Does he go in and party or does he walk away? Um, I guess that, well, you know, they, the interpretation is up to us. They killed Christ. Yeah. Yeah. But then we can say with confidence that many, as we learn in Acts of the Apostles, many of the priests came to faith. We don't, we don't think about this. A lot of times I think as Catholics, we think of the early church and the small band of, of the 12 disciples or 12 apostles and, and Mary and a few others, you get the 70. A large portion of Jerusalem accepted Christ once they realized that they had killed the Messiah. Many came to faith. Yes, 3,000 baptized in one day. Men, think about that. So with women and children, and they weren't contracepting. So you, what do you got? 10, 12, 15,000 people baptized in one day in the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Whoa, major, uh, a major portion of the city of Jerusalem. And then it just spread like wildfire from there, right? And so we can say that, yes, indeed, they went and they, they crucified Christ. And yet many did repent. Now, uh- just to, to wrap things up here for, for our discussion today, Father, you know, so we have this parable of the prodigal son. If we look to the epistle, it, you know, you think about how, I mean, we go out of order here. We, we always do the first reading and the Psalm and the gospel, and then we go back yeah. to look at the epistle as, as kind of an interpreting force. But the second reading leading into the prodigal son is, is quite a beautiful lead-in for us this Sunday. Oh, it, it is. And once you understand the connection with Joshua, and then, you can, and, then, and then what Jesus is saying in the parable, then St. Paul can simply apply it to the church. That's why we do it this way, of course. Right. We're not in the liturgy where you, where you get the culmination with the gospel, the most important part. But here we want to do the historical understanding. So now the gospel's done. Now the epistles, which are the writings to the early church, right, are read. Mm-hmm. And we can understand then how these Old Testament, the gospel reading is now applied to the life of the early church. And some, I think we just read the text and everything we've been saying now is applied, especially as we have the catechumens standing there listening to this. Go ahead, Annie. 
All right, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. Brothers and sisters, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ. As if God were appealing through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who did not know sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is, oh, St. Paul, baptism, oh. baptism, baptism, new creation. And then in light of Daniel, right, what he's saying about the Old Testament is a prefigurement of the new. As St. Paul writes, it's all about our entrance into paradise. Yes, the church truly is paradise restored. It is the place of that. It is the house of the Father. It is the house of God in which we now come and are restored in this covenant relationship and the two become one in Christ. This catechumen is what is about to take place for you. You are about to be made a new creation. You are about to enter again into paradise. You are again about to eat from the tree of life so that you can live forever. We'll finish with the quotation from St. John Chrysostom. Even if believers are still in their earthly bodies, we do not relate to them in that way because the life according to the flesh has been transcended. We have been born again by the spirit and have learned a, kind, a different kind of behavior, which is that of heaven. It is Christ who has brought about this change. There was a time when we knew him in his earthly life. But now we know him in the perfection of his resurrection. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.